0: You're listening to the BBC World Service Space Podcast. We're going to tell you how to live, work, play and fight at the final frontier, as well as saluting some of history's space pioneers. Happy listening!
1: Stare into space and think about the places humans have ever visited in our universe and you'll realise we haven't gone very far at all. Survival outside of Earth's finely-tuned environment is just so difficult. And the further you go, the greater the challenge gets.
2: Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo
1: 11. I'm Kevin Fong, and in this, the second and final episode of How to Survive in Space, here on the BBC World Service... I'm looking at how we can realise our long-term ambition to send astronauts out beyond Earth's orbit and fulfil our insatiable desire to find out more about our own origins and where life elsewhere in the universe might exist. And crucially, I want to investigate how we as humans might be able to survive long enough in the harshness of space to find out. You can just make out the backpack and the dark circle of the visor in front of it. That's one small step for man. It was the summer of 1969 when the world held its collective breath as Armstrong and Aldrin took their first tentative steps onto the moon's barren surface. Desolation. It's still the furthest we've ever been in space, merely a quarter of a million miles away. Five more crews successfully followed in their footsteps, but we haven't been back since. Now, it's easy to regard those Apollo missions driven by the tense politics of the Cold War as nothing more than flags, footsteps and imperial ambition. But Professor Ian Crawford of Birkbeck College London argues that their legacy is far, far greater.
3: A huge amount of science was delivered by the Apollo program. Essentially, you could make the case that most of contemporary planetary science, at least as regards to the rocky terrestrial planets of the inner solar system, is based on the Apollo legacy. In fact, you, you could imagine taking a modern textbook of planetary science and, and ripping out all the pages that weren't in some way based on the Apollo missions. And you'd end up with a very thin textbook full of gaping holes. And
1: it was an amazing achievement. In all, 12 men walked on the moon, covering much more ground than unmanned lunar rovers have ever managed since. And the last of them to step on the surface in 1972 wasn't only an astronaut, but also a scientist, Harrison Schmitt. Even then, as the Apollo-era adventure was drawing to a close, he and his crewmates were still making startling discoveries, offering up the first clues to the moon's evolution.
2: We had quite a number of unexpected discoveries. Oh, hey! There is orange soil. Probably the most famous one was when I found this uh, orange volcanic glass. It became known as the orange soil. Orange! Well, don't move it till I see it. It's all over. Don't move it till I see it. I've stirred it up with my feet. Hey, it is! Fantastic, sports fans. That is really orange. That was the first really brilliant coloured material that anybody had seen on the moon. Oh, man, that's incredible. It turned out that on Apollo 15, they had sampled some less striking green volcanic glass, and those two samples have become two of the most important samples ever taken on the moon because they relate very directly to the hypotheses for the origin
1: of the moon. But why would we want to go back now? Ian Crawford along with much of the space science community, argues that there's much unfinished business both on and below the lunar surface. As we've understood more of the Moon's origins, we've come to realise that it is, in effect, a museum of our planet's history.
3: The Moon contains this tremendous archive of the early history of the solar system, and the Earth has largely lost that because the Earth is such a geologically active planet. So records of what the Sun was doing, how many meteorites were flying around, smashing into planets. In the first half of solar system history, the Earth has lost this record, but the Moon preserves it. That's one of the reasons for wanting to return to the Moon. The other is, of course, the Moon is a very interesting, small, rocky planet whose geological history shut down a long time ago, and so essentially frozen in time, the Moon records the early stages of what larger planets like the Earth would have gone through, but have now evolved past. Not all of this requires sending humans to the Moon. One can imagine robotic spacecraft targeted to land in particular places to collect particular samples that would address some of these issues. But... The lunar geological record is so rich and the moon is such a large place and some of this record will be quite difficult to get, like it will require digging underground. But the added capabilities of having humans operating on the lunar surface will retrieve much more of this information than we could possibly hope to get with robots alone.
1: In a way, there's a close parallel here on Earth with our exploration of the South Pole which was pioneered just over a century ago by Robert Falcon Scott. His scientific legacy was far richer than even he could have ever imagined. And since then, we've learned to live and function under the pole's harsh, icy conditions for extended periods with the right technological support. So if we're to take up longer-term residency on the Moon, or indeed anywhere else in our solar system – should we be looking to Antarctica's history to show us the way? Here's veteran Antarctic explorer and NASA scientist Chris McKay.
2: I think the history of Antarctic exploration gives us a good model that we could apply to the Moon and Mars, with early, initial, very hard, one-off expeditions, but then moving into a period of essentially steady, continuous exploration where permanent bases are established by various nations... And there's the scientific and non-scientific exploration of that continent going on now continuously for over 55 years or so. That's what I'd like to see on the moon and Mars, follow up on these initial Apollo-style missions with the establishment of a permanent base, and a permanent base where we're planning to be there for 50, 100 years. Only in Antarctica do we find an environment where humans cannot survive without a technological bubble surrounding them. And that's what we've learned in the Antarctic, how to stay.
1: And it's an interesting parallel you draw there, that the scientific exploitation really proliferated in the middle of the last century. I mean, we didn't go back to the South Pole after Scott and Anderson first went for nearly half a century. Exactly. And it's interesting that it's, you know, getting on for half a century after the moon now. Do you think this is the time when we might finally leave Earth orbit properly? Your point is a good one. Now, maybe it's not exactly 50, it's not a
2: clock ticking down, maybe it'll take 60 or 70, but it's clear that there's going to be a big interval of time between the initial exploration and the establishment of a real scientific research outpost. We have to follow that model and push toward that, using the Antarctic as our
1: paradigm. And Ian Crawford has great expectations of what a lunar base will tell us about space. But it's the potential unknowns he thinks we should all be more excited about.
3: Once you have a scientific infrastructure in place, things get discovered serendipitously. Like in the Antarctic example, the ozone hole would be a rather important example of something that was discovered and studied by having these research stations at the Earth's South Pole. Now, we won't find an ozone hole on the Moon, of course, but we don't know that we wouldn't find other interesting and important things that we might like to know about.
1: What other things could you get from this human scientific infrastructure on the Moon?
3: In the longer term, as you Develop that, you've got a a spacefaring capability that you can use to do other things with, like you can send people to Mars or to asteroids or maybe even further afield. So there are all these multiple reasons for wanting to return to the moon, in addition to just the scientific ones.
1: When we imagine space exploration, we tend to think of travel to nearby planets or moons. But there are other bodies that humans might usefully explore for insight into life and our origins. We're now entertaining the idea of sending people to asteroids. And that's not as far-fetched as it sounds. Remember the Rosetta mission just over a year ago? Its robotic lander, Philae, made contact with a near-Earth object, the tiny volatile comet 67P. Planetary scientist Monica Grady was part of that spectacular achievement. So why are these objects so appealing?
4: Well, I think part of the reason is that they're relatively handy and relatively big in terms of actually getting there. Certainly the missions that are going there, the scientific missions that are going to bring material back are very much because we want to explore the solar system and understand its formation. So really good scientific projects. There are also another phase of projects which are looking at near-Earth asteroids and these are for resource implications. Mining asteroids for things like water to act as a fuel for further exploration or even for habitation on the moon or on asteroids.
1: And with your experience now of Rosetta and Philae, does the prospect of human missions to asteroids seem to you much less like science fiction and more like potential science fact?
4: Yes. I mean, the fact that Rosetta and Philae were autonomous in as much as they were controlled from the Earth, so everything had to be uploaded first in terms of control programmes. We're getting a lot better at that sort of remote operation, remote access of instruments. And so I think that that makes it more acceptable because if you can send robots to make places safe or check out the risks, people will be more accepting of the idea of space travel.
1: But the technological hurdles that have to be overcome at every step are formidable. Journeys of this kind mean long durations in space and away from the protection of Earth's magnetosphere. With that comes exposure to one of the greatest hazards of all, particle radiation, both from the background of cosmic rays at high energies accelerating through our galaxy and local events from our sun. Solar physicist Professor Lucy Green has been weighing up their impact on long-term space missions.
5: Particles coming from the sun can be accelerated to really high energies. And I should say that these are sporadic events. So the background radiation coming from the galaxy is always there, but the sun has these bursts of activity. So we get showered by the particles, but only in very particular times. Both electrons and protons get accelerated during these events, but really it's the protons that are important when it comes to thinking about astronauts, safety because they're the ones that can do the most damage to the human body. And we have some experience of, of the dose levels actually from the Apollo missions. So when NASA sent Apollo astronauts to the moon, they knew that this cosmic radiation was there. They knew that the sun produced sporadic bursts of intense radiation but luckily there was no dose that was large enough to cause a significant event although the sort of famous story in the community is that between the penultimate and the last Apollo missions there was a very significant solar event that had the astronauts been on the moon at that point in time they would have received a significant dose but luckily they weren't there.
1: So how can we mitigate the impact on astronauts? And is it possible to predict these events well enough that we can schedule our journeys accordingly?
5: We have been doing research to understand the physics behind these events for a long, long time now. And we know that they're associated to particular forms of solar activity. So the two forms are solar flares, which are these huge bursts of electromagnetic radiation, but they can also accelerate particles to very high energies. And then another form of solar activity that we call coronal mass ejections. And these are these bubbles of magnetic field that get... Blasted out into the solar system at enormous speeds and as they plough their way through the solar system they generate shocks and within those shocks they can then accelerate these particles to produce solar energetic particle events and so when it comes to mitigating the risks I would say that you need to use the scientific knowledge that we've generated and then you can forecast solar flares and that happens a lot actually what happens is that you look at the sun And you look at the regions that we call sunspots, which are where very strong magnetic fields are located. And it's in these regions that you get solar flares happening. So typically, forecasters will look at the sun, look at the complexity and the size of these sunspots, and then give a probabilistic forecast. So, for example, there's a 40% chance today that a very large solar flare will happen And it's in these bigger solar flares that you get the the particle events happening too. So the forecasting is a really important way to mitigate the risks.
1: Shielding against this radiation is difficult. Short of generating your own protective magnetosphere, it's difficult to guarantee safety. But there is another option. We know that water is a great absorber of this type of radiation. And so perhaps that... Might offer a solution.
5: While you're en route, you might do something novel like have a layer of water. So you might have some sort of water recycling system within your spacecraft that involves drinking the water, <laughs> you release the water, you urinate, the water gets cleaned. But you might have some sort of system where the water flows through the walls and gives you a layer of protection. So you might use some level of shielding on your spacecraft. But then what about when you get to the surface of the planet? Well, there you have materials readily at hand. For example, you could build your accommodation underneath the surface. You could use the lunar dust, the lunar surface, or you could use the Martian surface, the material of it, to provide that layer of protection.
1: Mars seems to creep into conversations with everyone I talk to. All eyes are on a human mission to the red planet because it's where we think we're most likely to find life or evidence of past life. Mars was certainly warmer and wetter in the past, enough, perhaps, that life might once have had a chance to claw its way in.
2: The prize on Mars is the search for life, and not just for life, but the search for a second genesis of life. The possibility that on Mars, the events that led to life on Earth happened there in a different way, that there's a different independent origin of life, so that we'll go there, we'll find life, we'll find its frozen, maybe dead remains... And by looking at them, we'll be able to deduce that that life had a different biochemistry than our life.
1: And it's worth the effort, the risk, the huge expense to prosecute these human missions? I would say yes. I think the search for life
2: on Mars is important for a fundamental philosophical reason. Is life on Earth a fluke, a unique cosmic accident, or is life common in the universe? If we go to Mars and we find evidence of an independent origin of life, That means it happened twice, independently, right here in our little solar system. That is compelling evidence that the universe is full of life, that it's just popping up all over the place. We live in a biologically friendly universe. When we only have one example of life, such as we have on Earth, we can't make that conclusion. The difference between one example of life and two examples of life is profound.
1: Any mission to Mars has to be more than just a rush to the surface marked with flags and footprints. The amount of investment and effort means we're going to have to be there for the long term. And for that, we're going to have to overcome a number of other technical hurdles to allow us to survive and function. Take something as simple as the spacesuit. On Earth, the current off the shelf design weighs 300 pounds. And that's fine for working in the weightlessness of the space station or on the moon. But as Pascal Lee of the Mars Institute points out, the gravity on Mars is a third of that on Earth. So it's back to the drawing board. Bear in mind that you you might need to bend
0: down, to pick up a rock, or climb up a hill to reach an outcrop. Okay, well, right there, that's going to be a killer. The point here is that we need to develop for Mars a spacesuit that will have a felt weight on Mars of no more than 60 pounds. That means back on Earth... That spacesuit can weigh no more than about 150 pounds, essentially half of the mass or the weight of the current spacesuit. But the challenge is formidable. Where do you trim? The helmet visor is down to a thin layer of glass. The spacesuit fabric itself is is just a, a series of a stack of thin layers of protective materials of different kinds. So you can see that there's very little to trim off. So to those who say that, you know, it's just a matter of political will and we can can be there in about five years, you you just don't have time with the best experts in the world to develop a good spacesuit for Mars before you can be assured that it will work three and a half years into a voyage on Mars on the most dusty world in the solar system.
1: And on the long journey to this distant, dusty world, far away from home or any prospect of a supply ship, the only way we're going to endure the journey is to become much more self-sufficient. Mike Barrett is an astronaut whose first space flight was a long-duration mission aboard the International Space Station. He believes that whilst a lot is being learnt there about creating a closed loop of self-sufficiency, many aspects need a radical rethink when it comes to long-distance space survival.
6: We do recycle about 80-something percent of our water up there, so whatever you, uh, you urinate into a hose and you're going to be drinking it in your coffee within a week... And same with sweat reclamation. If you sweat things off, you'll have uh, condensate from that, which will be purified, and you can drink that as well. And so we're pretty good at that. We definitely need to be more reliable with that hardware than we have been in the past. But some of our bigger issues are the oxygen generation and scrubbing carbon dioxide which we breathe out all the time and in a closed environment can become very toxic to us. So those systems that generate recycle water and generate oxygen, which we can actually easily generate by cracking the water electrically into oxygen and hydrogen and getting more efficient at recycling the water and recycling even feces, those are systems that we still need to develop And most importantly, we need to develop a much higher level of reliability so that those systems won't break during a three-year mission to Mars and back. And what about supplies
1: of food and nutrition? Here, too, a far greater degree of self-sufficiency is needed. After all, current supplies to the ISS are merely dehydrated packages.
6: Shipping the bulk amount of food needed for a two- to three-year deep space mission is actually not as difficult as ensuring the nutritional value of that food for three to five years. And three to five years is is what we look at because if we're going to Mars, for instance, we'd like to pre-position that food on the surface before the crews arrive. That way we're sure that when they land, they'll have enough to sustain them. But ensuring the nutritional value when you stick food on the shelf for five years, or even worse, when you subject it to spaceflight conditions of radiation and acceleration loads and temperature swings... Can you ensure that it's still got its nutritive value? That actually becomes a little bit dicier. Some of the things that we've looked at are certainly uh, plant growth, and it, it actually takes a huge amount of energy to grow appreciable levels of plants that can be nutritionally useful to you, but obviously something that we're extremely interested in. And then flying more primitive food material that we could then generate or 3D print into edible foodstuffs, with vitamin supplements that could be stored in a more hardened container. I can tell you that arriving at your destination in a healthy condition is probably in the bag now. But
1: when we arrive, we'll be travelling at hypersonic speed, over 20 times the speed of sound. So how is it possible to land on the red planet without crashing into it? Who better to answer this than aerospace engineer Anita Sengupta... Her mission was to design and develop the supersonic parachute, which in 2012 helped put NASA's Curiosity rover onto the surface of Mars. It was the most sophisticated lander ever built, yet the plan to get it safely down onto the red planet's surface was little short of crazy, with the drag of the atmosphere clawing at the vehicle as it scorched across the Martian sky.
7: This vehicle containing the rover is girdling through the Martian atmosphere, experiencing this aerodynamic drag, and it's actually slowing down. But as it's being slowed down, it's experiencing friction with the atmosphere, which ends up making it very, very hot. A couple thousand degrees centigrade, which is basically the temperature of the sun. And so this thermal protection system material has to not only hold it all together, but it has to make sure that that energy is dissipated with that material and doesn't make its way into the interior cavity where the rover is.
1: Vehicles continue to accelerate. We're down to about Mach 2. As a reminder, we should have parachute
7: deploy around Mach 1.7. And so you stay on this heat shield, the rover inside of it, slowing down to basically supersonic speeds. And at supersonic speeds around Mach 2, you can't actually slow down any further. You've basically reached terminal velocity because your drag area is what it is. And so at that point, all you can do to slow yourself down further is to deploy a larger aerodynamic decelerator, which in this case is a parachute.
6: Parachute deploy. Parachute. <laughs>
7: Parachutes for Mars are very different for parachutes for Earth because of the environment that you find yourself on Mars. And so there's very unique challenges associated with opening up a parachute both in the low-density atmosphere as well as at supersonic speeds. We had to do all that without ever actually testing it in the right environment.
1: And so how do you do that? You can't go to Mars. You can't even really accurately simulate Mars. How do you go about testing
7: Now that we have, you know, the advent of supercomputers, you can actually create very good computer simulations of what the flow field is like around the
1: parachute. Put me in the room with you guys for entry, descent and landing, Uh, because I listened to it. I went to the Science Museum here in London to listen to it. The live feed was enormously exciting just as you know from this voyeuristic standpoint of listening to it. and i just remember those you know delicious ripples of applause as each subsystem deployed correctly and then sort of a hush as they waited for someone else's to take over but what was it like there in the room for you guys
7: it was just a sense of nervousness but extreme excitement and then absolute joy at the very end right when it actually landed and the picture popped up
6: touch confirmed we're safe yeah! on live
7: People sometimes say, oh, well, wouldn't you like to go to Mars? When you build something that does go to Mars, you kind of already there. So it it was just uh, very satisfying. And it's definitely the most satisfying thing that I've done in my career. And what always amazes me when you look at the pictures coming back is how similar it looks to Earth. It looks like the desert in Nevada. And to me, that's so amazing that another world, even though, of course, it's different from Earth, is still like our world. It somehow connects us to the greater universe, I think. So that's what excites me so much, is that we're able to do these things. We're able to put ourselves on these other worlds and kind of show everybody that we're all connected to something much bigger than ourselves.
1: It's a powerful thought, and one which drives the ambition of many space scientists and engineers I've spoken with here on the ground. And whilst all eyes might currently be on Mars the scale of our ambition shouldn't just be limited to visits within the inner solar system.
3: We've now got about half a dozen of these bullet points for wanting to invest in human space exploration. Science, technology, economics, inspiration, international cooperation, vision. What, to my mind, is an overwhelmingly compelling reason for investing in human space exploration. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to send people further afield if there's a reason to do so. If space exploration can do anything for us culturally, it's a vision of an optimistic open frontier. And so we don't want to curtail that by giving the impression that actually the frontier ends at Mars, because I don't think it will. I began
1: this series with my recollection of forty years ago, when, at the height of the Cold War, Russian cosmonauts shook hands with American astronauts in orbit. I'm
0: using the polar, I'm shaking hands now.
1: I was four years old at the time, and my parents woke me to watch the drama of that mission play out on our fuzzy black-and-white television. Back then, space exploration was little more than a surrogate battlefield for nuclear war. But through the efforts of scientists and governments, it's matured into a programme of international collaboration and peaceful exploration. The things that captured my imagination all those years ago have never ceased to fascinate me. They drove me to the career in science and medicine I so much love today and I hope that as the adventure of human spaceflight continues, it will do the same for the next generation of scientists and explorers. Thanks for listening. Find more interviews, features and documentaries at bbcworldservice.com
0: space.